0: We'll be reading today from 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 25. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Libo Hamath, as far as the sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who is from Gath Hefer. This is God's word. You may be seated. We are actually starting a series in what are called the Minor Prophets which is a part of the Old Testament that we're going to go through from start to finish. And I'm going to do them in chronological order, meaning the oldest toward the newest. And so we find ourselves in the book of Jonah this morning, because Jonah happens to be the oldest of what we call the minor prophets. I'll make some more comment about minor and major prophets in just a minute, because They're really quite terrible names. Um, They really don't mean what one thinks. And so this morning, and if you're a guest with us, I apologize. And we have a lot of folks that are out of town this morning, and I'll have to try to bring them up to speed. Today will be a little bit more of a lecture than it will be a sermon, because I need to introduce us to not only the context of the book of Jonah, but the context, both historical Uh, and biblical in terms of how the minor prophets start and where they're going to take us through. Now, I understand that for many of us, even those of us who have been in church for a long time, the minor prophets are not where we spend a a boatload of time. And, And it can be difficult to even name who some of them are and tell us anything about what's going on in any of those books. Jonah is one of those exceptions because chances are, If you went to Sunday school once in your life, you heard the story of Jonah and the great fish. And and you remember it because it was on a flannel graph board and flannel graph is great for helping us remember these kinds of things. The challenge is the book of Jonah has a whole lot more to do with us than it does a great fish. So today what I've done and, and and I know the temptation. You have a map in front of you and a foldout. I don't want you to get them out yet. Reserve the temptation to look at those and maybe not hear what I have to say for about ten minutes. And then I'm going to take us to the, to the map and to this foldout and kind of explain what they are and how they work. But in in the meantime, I want to give us kind of a historical backdrop in terms of what's going on in the book of Jonah and and what's going on. And then I'm going to leave you today with a couple of questions that I hope keep you up at night that we will endeavor to answer throughout our study of Jonah, which I'm guessing will only take us about three weeks once we get to the text but what we're doing today is really the backdrop for what we're going to look at over the next couple of months as we plow through the Minor Prophets. Before I go any further, does anybody need a map or a fold foldout that wants one for this study? If you're not going to look at them or don't use them, that's totally fine. That's okay. I know you cannot see these up here. I get that. I'll explain all of that in just a minute or two as we get to the text. But Before we do that, let me just pray briefly. Father, it is my heart's desire to be clear. And it's my heart's desire to lay the backdrop and the background for what is such an important part of our Bibles. And a part of our Bibles that we may not know well that will help us understand the Lord Jesus Christ better. And that we can move forward uh, with a clear understanding of who you want us to be through Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. John read that difficult passage in, in 2 Kings chapter 14. And, and I would encourage you, if you're, if you're really wanting to get serious, to maybe read chapter 13, 14, and 15 of Second Kings. Because that kind of gives you the historical backdrop for what's going on uh, in the book of Jonah and all the rest of it. And, and Jonah is mentioned in the verses that, uh, that John read and John, uh, Jonah's father and who was the king of Israel at the time. The king of Israel at the time that Jonah was called to be a prophet was a fellow whose name was Jeroboam II. He was the second because the original Jeroboam came about 150 years before him. They were related, but in a very, very distant way. But because he shared the same name, he came along and they called him Jeroboam II. He reigned in Israel for 41 years which was a long time for any king during the ancient period and his dates if you're interested was 793 to 753 bc and he lived a a long time and in the passage that john read from us in second kings this is what we know about jeroboam he did evil in the sight of the lord Now, I could go into great depth and take you to the scripture and tell you some of the things that he did and and so on and so forth. But by way of summary today, let us just say Jeroboam was an evil man. He did not lead his people faithfully. And when I say that, I mean the spiritual climate of his nation was terrible. It was mixed in with idolatry and all these other things, and he really didn't have a corporate sense of trying to lead his people toward faithful worship of God and the temple and, and all these other kinds of things. And there was a great disparity politically among the people. I am not making a comparison to America because I don't necessarily believe it, but the rich got richer and the poor got poorer and the taxes got higher during Jeroboam's day. So that was kind of the culture and the environment in which Jonah found himself. Uh, a godless time, so to speak. The vestiges of religion were there. But, uh, but there was no heart in the nation for God, aside from a few individuals scattered here and about. And Jeroboam, as king, certainly didn't represent the faithful. Um, And so it was an interesting time because on the other side of the coin, while there was kind of spiritual and political bankruptcy, the nation was flourishing. It was prosperous under Jeroboam II. As a matter of fact, their borders expanded to the point under Jeroboam where they were the same size and had sort of the similar wealth to Israel's time during King Solomon. And so if you were wanting to see the trickle-down theory of economics put in place in the ancient world, Jeroboam was a picture-perfect example of that. And so if you looked at Israel during that period of time, you would be in a bit of a quandary. Because you would say, humanly speaking everything looked pretty good. We didn't have a whole lot of enemies that were showing their faces. Politics are a little shaky, spiritual life kind of terrible, but, but the land is prospering. We're, we're blooming and we're, we're growing, and so who's going to want to rock the boat then during that period of time? Now, throughout Israel's history, and this is very important, and this will come to highlight when we look at the the fold-out and all the rest of it. Israel started with 12 tribes, and it was a unified nation under David and under Solomon. There came a period when the nation split into two different kingdoms. There's the kingdom in the north and the kingdom in the south. And I'm oversimplifying everything. But Jeroboam II, during this period in history, was the king of the northern tribes, which were called Israel. Judah was in the southern tribes, and they didn't have much to do with each other. They didn't necessarily even like each other all that well. But the north was really flourishing and prospering. So it was during this period of time that God came to Jonah and said, I want you to be a prophet, and I want you to go to a particular people, and I want you to give them a particular message. Now, Jonah's message was God is going to essentially destroy your city in 40 days, and Jonah, I want you to deliver that message. And the people to whom he was to go was to a place called Nineveh. We'll get to that on the map in just a few minutes. Nineveh was way north from where Jonah went. And, and Jonah said, I, not only do I not want to go, I am not going. And he got himself on a boat, and I'll show you all this on a map, and he took a very long journey. There was a big storm, and this is where the fish comes in. The sailors threw him overboard. He was swallowed by a large fish. Three days later, he was spit up on dry land. He went to the town of Nineveh, delivered God's message. The people repented. Jonah went outside the city and was extraordinarily angry with God. And that's how the book ends. That's that's the whole story of the book of Jonah. Jonah is never once happy. He is never once repentant. He is walking the line of sort of virtual obedience. And the book ends with God saying, Why are you acting this way, in short? And so I was plagued with a lot of questions, some of which I've answered and some of which we will answer together in the next few weeks. For example, the question is, Jonah, why are you so cranky with this city called Nineveh? So much so that you will disobey God directly And you will end after they are repentant, still angry. You see, if I was a missionary, and I had been called by God to the most hostile nation on earth, which at the time Nineveh was, and I went there and the entire nation repented, when I went outside the city, I would say, praise God. That's extraordinary. That's not Jonah's response. Ah, so we have a mystery there, part of which we'll answer today. But but there are other mysteries. You see, the book is so filled with what we can call fanciful tales, a big fish that swallows a man and keeps him alive for three days, a, a windstorm that comes up so miraculously that seasoned sailors fear the safety of the boat and all on board, a plant that grows up miraculously overnight so large that it gives shade to Jonah in the desert sun and then dies overnight at the hands of a worm that guess what scholars say? It's a wonderful fictional story that has some good moral application. Here's the problem. Number one, the individual Jonah is mentioned to us in places like 2 Kings that John read for us earlier. And the Lord Jesus Christ has the audacity to quote Jonah three times and reference him in relationship to himself as an historical person and with historical events in mind. Ah. So either Jesus believes in myths and Now, Now, we're going to spend, when we get there, about a minute and a half on the big fish. Sorry to disappoint you. I have no idea whether it was a whale or a sea monster. The fish is told to us to have been prepared by God. It could be something we have no idea that we have never seen before. But the point of the story is not the fish. There are some main themes and some main questions, like why do the sailors repent? Why does Nineveh repent? And Jonah doesn't seem to. There's a question that'll keep a guy like me up all night and, and really plague and And why does Jesus, when he refers to Noah, says, I will give you nothing but the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? I hope I'm causing sleepless nights in you all, because this is what we're going to work through in the next couple of weeks. But anyways, I've given you the backdrop, and during um, uh, our famous King's period of time, um, we, we have three of the minor prophets written. We have Jonah, we have Amos, and we have Hosea. All three of those guys had their ministries during this particular period of time, and you'll see that in just a moment. And, and, but Jonah's ministry was unique, because in all of the Old Testament, Jonah was the only prophet that was called to preach to Gentiles to preach to people outside of Israel. The apostle Paul was called years later, and Paul went to Tarshish, which is where Jonah tried to go. You know, we can call that a coincidence if you want, but but Jonah was the only one who was given the job of preaching to Gentiles. And you know how many verses in his book are dedicated to the message that he preached? Three. The whole book of Jonah contains three verses on what Jonah preached, so the content of his message has less to do with the book than some of the other features that we're going to look at throughout the story of the book of Jonah. All right? So it's, it's, I'm hoping that your feet are getting itchy and all the rest of it. So now, here's what we're going to do. Pull out your maps. If you've got them And if you're interested, and if you're not, I'm sorry. Now, here's the reality. I know you cannot see my map, and I know you cannot see my fold-out. But you can see where my finger points to on places on the map, so that we can understand all of this, and then we'll get to the fold-out. I'm speaking loud, intentionally, and all the rest of it. In the middle of this map, now these maps are important because a friend of mine drew them, and, and, and he spent his entire life walking this land and drawing these maps. In the center of the map, right above the crease that makes the X, is a little light blue box. And in that, in that little box, we will call the land between. And that little box represents what we'll call the holy land for lack of better sake. Everybody see that? And kind of in the middle of that box, you're going to see the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. All right. Tell me if you cannot find Jerusalem in the middle of the box. I'm trying to give you a familiar place and a familiar name so you can understand where we're taking off from. There's the city of Jerusalem where so much of the things take place. Everybody with me on that as far as where Jerusalem is and all the right. Okay. just north of Jerusalem is a place called Megiddo. Okay. everybody got Megiddo. Anybody lost on Megiddo? One thirty-second of an inch above the M and the E in Megiddo is a place that's not on your map called Gath Hefer, which John read about from 2 Kings chapter 4, 14. And that's the hometown of Jonah. That's where Jonah was born. And it's right next door to Nazareth. Somebody else in the Bible came from Nazareth. All right? so that's the place where Jonah was born from right to the west of that along the coast of the Mediterranean right to the west of Jerusalem you'll see a town on the coast called Joppa everybody with me on Joppa okay so think of the port of Los Angeles back when it was a port back when ships came in and out and everything traveled in and out by sea coast, commerce and all the rest of it. When Jonah got the word from God to go to Nineveh, he said, "I'm out of here." Now let me show you Nineveh before we trace him. Right up here, Nineveh. Everybody try to find Nineveh. Anybody having trouble finding Nineveh? It's important. This is where this is where Jonah was supposed to go. Okay? Everybody got that? On my finger? Hang with me. I'll keep my finger here. I'm not moving. This is important. Nineveh, right there. You got it? Everybody there? Good. Okay, keep your finger on Nineveh. There's a couple of names above Nineveh, and there's a couple of places below Nineveh. All those places at one point or another during time were capital cities of the nation of Assyria. At the time of Jonah, Nineveh was the capital city. You got that? Now, was Israel and Assyria ever friendly? Well, they touched on friendliness a time or two, but basically they were not happy. And so Jonah was called to go from his hometown... Up to Nineveh. That was his call. Instead, what he did was he went to Joppa, this great port town, and he found the biggest boat that he could, commercial sailing vessel, in the mid 700s, the mid 8th century BC. And he says, Where are you going? And they said, We're going to Tarshish. Now, the Tarshish is going to be easy to find. Everybody, look where my finger is. Okay? Tarshish is not on the map because Tarshish is in what is what we would call modern-day Spain. Modern-day Spain. He wants to go from Joppa to Spain by boat. Now we know, so, and, and, and Tarshish at the time is considered the end of the world. This is how far Jonah wants to run from God. And in your text, and I'll just read this, it says in verse 3, So he paid the fare and went down into it, that is the boat, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah's goal, we got to have this in our heads, Jonah's goal was to get away from the presence of God. That's a lofty goal. But isn't that what the human heart wants to do? Get away from the presence of God. So he picks a spot over here in Tarshish. Now, so we know it's a big boat because little boats, I mean I'm being serious, little boats don't get out of Joppa and go zipping all the way across the Mediterranean Sea through and by Sicily up around the coast. Now, what happened was this, and this is how the trade works, uh, routes worked. This, uh, this is great stuff, huh? It's not my stuff. it's good stuff. So he leaves Joppa, and the boat most likely, most likely, because this is how trade worked in during the period of time. He either the boat could have gone directly over here to Cyprus, the island, or it could have gone along and most likely went along the coast and would have gone around the top of Cyprus and then made its way along the trade journeys over to Tarshish. Jonah never made it. The big storm came, the fish event, he's pitched overboard, and he is most likely, and I want you to heed heed those words, most likely, he's put back on land somewhere along the coast, right up in here, probably below a little place called Seleucia. And that's where he has enough of a change of heart that he says, I am now going to go to Nineveh. And he goes and he travels over to Nineveh and he has a preaching opportunity there. He preaches for three days. We'll get to this in the next couple of weeks. And the entire nation repents. And Jonah is cranky. He's so cranky with God that he says, please kill me. I'm not kidding, it'll see it in the text. I'm so unhappy, take my life, God. That's the book of Jonah. And there is mystery. And you wonder what in the world is going on with this guy and why the, the tension and, and what's going on. So, now, for a moment, and, and if you don't watch your maps, Fold them up, put them back on the counter. We'll give them to others during the ongoing saga of the minor prophets. But if you want it, we're going to keep using it throughout the whole series, right? So keep them. They're, they're our gift to you. Pull out this, okay? I know this is a lot, friends. I really mean this, and I worked hard to try to be as smart and as lack of boredom as I possibly could in doing this. But if the background is not understood, then we don't understand the message. So think of this as space and this is time, okay? This is space and this is time. Before you open the thing up, turn to what I'm calling the back page that has a diagram like this. There's more information in this than I wrote in my doctoral thesis. And I didn't write a doctoral thesis. But, but I'm telling you, there's a boatload of information on this. Let me explain just very quickly what's on this chart. We'll start with colors, because colors are easy unless you're colorblind, and then have somebody explain what I'm talking about. The blue on the right represents Assyria and what is happening in Assyria at any given particular point in history, and that is consistent throughout the whole foldout. The orange, is what we're going to call the northern kingdom of Israel. And the green is the southern kingdom of Israel. Okay? Fairly simple, fairly straightforward. On the top of this chart, you have the timeline. In other words, where we are in history as far as years. And along the bottom, before the writing starts, we have what prophet was at work in each Part of the kingdom, if they're in green, they were in the northern kingdom. If they were in orange, I'm sorry, if they were in orange, the northern kingdom. If they were green, in the southern kingdom. And when and where they were working. Does that make sense? So you can trace, and you see Samuel, he's working during the period of, of David and, and Saul and Solomon, right? Then you've got Elijah and Elisha, and we call them kind of the non-writing prophets, because there's not a book named after those guys and then we get to some of the minor prophets and now I'm going to clear the air why are they called minor prophets? it is not because their message was less important it was not because their content was second rate it's because their books were shorter. and some brilliant scholar who was probably an American said we're going to call them minor the Hebrew Bible does not make that distinction they're all called prophets, but for, because we've become so used to that, we'll call them minor prophets. Okay, so you got everybody got the colors, you got the timeline, you got when the prophets are at work. Now open up your brochure, because this is really going to start to answer a lot of questions. All right, the the thing the thing to read if you want to read this, it'll be very very helpful. Is there's a section in blue that says minus 800 to minus 540, that, ta- that paragraph talks about what's going on during the period of Jonah. Okay, so if you want to look that over. But now that your brochures or your, your foldouts, John or Jim calls them gateways, we now look at this. color scheme is exactly the same. Dates are the same. Prophets are the same. Blue regardless of where it is, is Assyria, okay? The orange is what's going on in the northern tribes. Green is what's going on in the southern tribes. The little red boxes are periods of of, uh, anarchy, and I won't need to bother talking with those. But the prophets, again, follow along, and then you have the timeline along the top. Does that make sense? Okay, now... Look where my finger is. Almost exactly in the center of the chart. Everybody find it. You will find Jonah. This is, we're not going to do a whole lot more detail in this chart because it makes my head hurt. Okay, But find Jonah. Everybody with me on where Jonah is. Nobody having trouble finding Jonah? Okay, that's important. Now look at the orange. What's happening with the orange? Major expansion, right? See how it goes up like this? Everybody see that? That represents the expansive time, the broadening of borders, great cultural uh, uh, development and financial expanse under Jeroboam II, and Jonah's right in the middle of it. Just to the right of it and just down a little bit, you'll see the names Amos and Hosea. They're also during that period of time uh, that that, uh, Jeroboam was was king and all the rest of it. If you go to the left, just bear with me a couple more things and then we'll be done with this for now. The green and the orange are, are muddied and there's not a clear distinction between them. That's because it was during the period of David and Solomon and the kingdom was united. So if you just move to the right a little bit, you see where the demarcation is. You can go up to the date and see where the kingdoms became divided. And you can see when the northern kingdom expanded or when the northern kingdom was brought down. You see where the southern kingdom expanded and when the southern kingdom was going flat. Is that You with me on all this? Am I making sense? Perfect sense. Okay. Why did Jonah hate Nineveh? Keep your charts open. Don't look at them, but keep them open. Unlike us, Jonah was a student of history. Right? He knew what happened 30 years ago. It's hard for us to remember what We go, yeah, that's the 60s. I shouldn't remember those anyways (laughs) Uh, I can't remember those or the 70's or the 80's or whatever Uh, you know I can't even tell you what was 30 years ago because I can't do math well enough to do it right? but Jonah was a student of history now if you look at your charts and if the blue represents Assyria what what do we think happens in time when this blue comes all the way down and the orange disappears the orange disappears and the blue is all there that's when Assyria came and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and hauled them off to Assyria right that's what we have in the prophets and you can look down below and see What's going to take place? And so that is what happens. But what happened, you see this little blip where the blue before Jonah, 20 or 30 years before Jonah, you see what happened when the blue comes down? Assyria made a, a major push into the south, and they were successful. Now, get, let me tell you what happened, and I don't and I want to bore you too much with all this stuff, but if you were to go back to your maps and you were to look in that little blue box in the center of it, you would find a place called Damascus. We've all heard about Damascus. The road to Damascus, this happens to be the place where the Apostle Paul met Jesus. Damascus is not an insignificant place. It was a historical enemy of the northern tribes of Israel, and that blue line that comes down was a period of time when Assyria came down and actually conquered Damascus. And they wiped Damascus out. Now we can see that the the defeat of Damascus didn't last very long. They came back and their little brown power pushed up and, and all that other kind of stuff. But Jonah had a memory. Jonah said, you mess with Assyria, you're messing with somebody that has a tremendous amount of power a huge amount of power. Assyria has always been a problem for Israel but but here and here and well he didn't know this yet but but there were threats of it that Assyria is not to be messed with. So one of Jonah's challenges was and I'm not saying he's right in fact we're probably gonna prove that he was wrong why in the world Would I want to have God show mercy to a people who pose a threat to my nation and to me? As a matter of fact, if you were to go back to the map and you were to look to Damascus in relationship to where Jonah grew up, it's about two and a half miles. The Assyrians had pushed that close to home. You see, he he knew what the Assyrians could do. God, I don't want to see my potential enemy hear anything from you, but what I want to see is you destroy them. Right? Which still begs an interesting question. Why wouldn't Jonah have wanted to carry that message. Because here's the content of, of, of the message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's Jonah's message to the city. In 40 days, your city is gonna be overthrown. Well, if Jonah's goal was, I wanna see these people wiped out, I would be happy to deliver that. The problem was Jonah also know that God was merciful. Okay? And he knew that there was a potential that if God's message was delivered to a people, they would repent. And they would be spared. And Jonah didn't want that. Now, I'm not trying to paint Jonah as a bad guy because I'll be honest with you, some of us may swim in that pond I don't want to share the gospel with that guy because God might actually cause him to repent and I'm the arbitrator of who's going to do that not God that's for another day but you see the tension Jonah knew the power that Assyria had And he was called by God to to send a message of warning to a people who posed a threat to he and his. And he didn't want to do it. And so the backdrop and the history, and, and guess what? Just a few years after that, what happens? Assyria comes marching down and the entire northern kingdom is gone. And they're put into exile by the Assyrians. And guess what book is written during that period of time? Isaiah. Isaiah. Promising the coming Messiah during the lowest point in Israel's history. Behold, the king is coming. He topples kingdoms, so he raises them up And It's not written when Jeroboam II is king. It's written when there's no kingdom at all. And Assyria is ruling everything. And Jonah goes, I don't want to go through that. All right. Two things and then we're done. If you have your Bibles, I just want to introduce you to three passages. Turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 12. Fascinating bit of business here. I'm just setting you up. I'm not not doing any application today. I'm not doing anything other than what I think is tremendously valuable. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 41. Jesus is having a conversation with the scribes and the Pharisees. And they say, teacher, here's what we want from you. We want a sign. We want a sign. Do something grand. Do something big. Just, just make us happy. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him and said, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered for them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. is the sign of Jonah now he makes comparisons to three days in the belly of the whale which we'll look at or the fish and Jesus being in the grave for three days and rising again and so that cannot be missed but is that all because there seems to be a great deal of judgment talk here to people who want a sign so I'm hoping that causes you sleepless nights Just write down two more passages. We won't turn to them. Matthew 16.4 and Luke 29.32 They're the most complete. I'm sorry, the one we read was the most complete of Jesus' allusion to the the book of Jonah and what's going on there. I'm not trying to do smoke and mirrors. What I'm saying is the context and the history and the context in Jesus' day in which he's talking to the religious establishment who wants a sign or connected. You see what I'm saying? So that we can understand the message of the book of Jonah. So think about repentance. Don't think too much about a big fish, because I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time there. And, And spend a lot of time saying... Why was Jonah so cranky when people repented? And is there any of that in me? I don't think there is, but to ask. It's a valuable, valuable question. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray and then we'll stand and sing the doxology, okay? Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for its background. And I thank you for time and space which add meaning to us. And I pray, Father, that you would receive glory and honor from our study of the minor prophets and that we would be changed as a result. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.